Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. And continuing on with a little bit of Draft Deeper's coverage in regards to the lottery teams and where they actually went in the 2022 NBA draft, what their rookies are looking like after summer league. How are things actually going to shake up for the team moving forward now that the draft's over? And the only person that I really want to have on to talk about Sacramento Kings basketball, come on. If, if there's a fan of the team in our no ceilings collective, I got to go there, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're giving out some of the best content related to the NBA basketball large, but especially the NBA draft. Nick Ager Johnson checks all of those boxes in terms of coverage for the Sacramento Kings. So I got to have him back on the podcast. Nick, you've been on the podcast before to talk Kings. We're going to do it again tonight, but listen, they're, they're your team. You have to be excited for this moment, right? What's going on? So first of all, thank you for having me and for the exceptionally kind intro. Second of all, this has been one of the few times in my going on a decade of Sacramento Kings fandom that there's actually been some reason to be excited about the upcoming season rather than just, you know, wallowing in despair. And, you know, a huge part of why I cover the NBA draft in the first place is because, you know, that was the only place that Kings fans really have had any hope for, you know, going on 15, 16 years now. So it's actually an exciting time to be a Sacramento Kings fan, which is not something I've been able to say all that often. So I am stoked to be able to say it again and again until, you know, the season starts and they probably go, oh, and 20 or whatever. Well, it put a smile on my face to watch some of your reactions in person in the stands. We, we did get to take in the Kings and the magic up close and personal out in Las Vegas. Yes, Summer League. I'll, I'll throw you the softball question. Just kind of get us going on this podcast a little bit that, that was your first summer league experience, as you wrote about on your 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 summer league diary on NoSillingsNBA.com. That was really your first time out there, kind of taking everything in. I've been going out to summer league since about 2016, 2017. So it wasn't my first rodeo, first rodeo with the squad, which was awesome. It was great to actually meet all of you, in particular, you West Coasters in person, right? <laughs> that was a lot of fun, but I've said on this podcast multiple times that summer league is one of the best things the NBA does for its fans, for its fans, for anybody who enjoys and appreciates and wants to get into the work that you and I do. It's one of my favorite things that I can look forward going to year in and year out. Number two, as I alluded to in a column I just wrote a few weeks ago would be the Portsmouth invitational that's up there for, for a diehard scout like me, but summer league, Summer League's the best, man. So I've given my sales pitch on this podcast multiple times, but for you, for it being the, your first time out there, give everyone else the sales pitch for going out to Summer League, whether they're a fan of the game or whether they're trying to do or be involved in some of the work that you and I are involved in on a day-to-day -day with no ceilings. I don't think that there is any experience in sports as a whole that is quite like NBA Summer League in Las Vegas. And I guess technically I had been to a Summer League before because I'd been to a couple of the California classic setups here in Sacramento at the Golden One Center, lovely new arena in downtown <laughs> Sacramento. But the thing about NBA Summer League in Las Vegas is it's truly an astounding mix of just mainlining basketball for like eight straight hours you have you know the setup 
in Vegas for those who have never been to Summer League and who haven't watched enough of it on TV to sort of recognize that there are two separate gyms. And, you know, I knew sort of theoretically that, you know, okay, these are two attached gyms in the mm-hmm. same complex, right? But it's one thing to know that theoretically and another thing entirely to be like, okay, it's started the second quarter of this Knicks-Bulls game that's pretty terrible. Why don't we get up, walk about 500 feet past some of the most famous people associated with the NBA and professional basketball that are alive, you know, walk about 500 feet through that crowd of people, walk into the arena next door and watch a completely different basketball game. It is truly astounding the way that Summer League just allows you to feel like you're, you know, even for someone like me who does not have as many connections in the NBA world as you do, or as some of our other New Zealand's colleagues do, it's just a remarkable experience to walk into this arena and be like a good 70, 80% of the movers and shakers in the NBA are in one of these two buildings right now, watching one of the two basketball games that's on. And, you know, it's not just the experience of watching summer league basketball for eight straight hours and just, you know, wandering around, finding the best seats you can, jumping up a few rows as soon as someone is uh, stupid enough to get up and go to the bathroom for five minutes. But, you know, the whole idea that it's these two attached complexes, you can just walk between, you can watch the best basketball you're going to watch, you know, anywhere in the world that summer, right? Especially like early July, you know, it's, it's truly an astounding experience. And anyone who is a fan of the NBA in any capacity I feel like they would really enjoy going at least once to see what the summer league experience has to offer. And it's like nothing I've ever experienced before. Excellent sales pitch. And the best part about it is you can enjoy everything at Thomas and Mac. And then afterwards you're in the nice city of Las Vegas. You can do whatever the hell you want. You can go out for a nice steak dinner. Like we did. You can enjoy some of the nightlife. You can gamble, what, whatever your heart desires lay, lay out by the pool when, when you're not watching any games, right? It's the, there is nothing else like that experience so I'm, I'm glad that you're giving it the thumbs up i've given it a thumbs up everybody who hasn't been to summer league listening to this podcast if you truly love basketball i know you do because if you didn't love basketball you wouldn't be listening to my podcast so if you are listening out there you haven't been please just one time at least one time go out to las vegas experience summer league and really have some fun appreciating the game and in a different way, rubbing elbows, meeting, networking with some people you wouldn't normally do or, or meet on, on the regular basis in your hometown. Just go out and do it, go out and have some fun. So that's our little sales pitch to, to start off the podcast. Now we're going to get into the meat and potatoes where we're talking Sacramento Kings. We're a draft podcast. The 2022 NBA draft happened a few months ago. Keegan Murray, right. Ended up being the fourth overall pick to the Sacramento Kings. That was a hot debate to say the least in a number of draft circles was Sacramento was sitting at number four, right? They, they hopped up. Congratulations to you guys. You did end up moving up quite a few spots to get the fourth overall pick, but in theory, you were missing out on the big three of Chet, Paolo and Jabari. So everybody kind of looks around like, okay, the draft really starts with the Sacramento Kings. What direction are they going to go? They have a bunch of guards. They have a, a really talented big man that they landed in the trade market in Demonis Sabonis. They technically need more help on the wing, but by everybody's big boards and, and by certainly what was being uh, talked about in the media, for the most part, Jay Nivey was the best player available by, by popular opinion at that fourth spot, right? So it was the debate of, 
do the Kings take another guard? Do they try and stuff Jay Nivey in there with Davion Mitchell and De'Aaron Fox already firmly in the rotation spots? Or do they go a different direction? Do they go to route of a Keegan Murray? Do they go to route of a, a even more surprise pick at that spot, like a Benedict Matherin or a Shaden Sharp to better fill out that wing spot and, and try and plug and play a young option with upside around some of the talent that's already on the roster. You didn't go to the route of the guard. You, you didn't go the route of Jaden Ivey, which we'll definitely get to a little bit of a debate with him in a second. Maybe it's not going to be a debate in, in Nick's opinion. As you said before we got on this podcast, I'm, I'm ready to squash the debate for the 750th time, which mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm here for it. And this is a draft podcast. It's what we do on, on a daily basis, but you went the route of Keegan Murray. I think from, from what anybody could have seen at summer league, if you came away disappointed with how Keegan played in summer league, we weren't watching the same basketball game, right? Like I sat there, I was, I won't say I was amazed by what Keegan did in summer league, but I was, I was pleasantly surprised by what I saw. And I think that that's an appropriate phrase to use from even someone like me, who I was high on Keegan in this draft process, right? Like he was a top seven prospect for me for the majority of the cycle. And some people wanted to knock him down. They, they looked at some of the things he can't do. They looked at his age. They questioned how, how much upside does he actually have given some of those concerns laid out. And Nick, you and I, and pretty much everybody else in no ceilings kind of sat back and said, we don't care about a lot of those negatives. We think he's one of the best players available in this draft. We look at the things he can do. We recognize that the things that he can do are a great fit for the modern game and at a position of need, not only for the Kings, but for a lot of teams in the NBA in general, that three, four kind of combo forward spot, Keegan Murray checks a lot of boxes. And I think he certainly checked a lot of boxes, particularly on offense from what my eyes could see in summer league. So like I said, you you were smiling ear to ear watching your Kings at Summer League. And I don't blame you. There was Keegan Murray. There was Nemeis Keita. There, there was a whole bunch of fun to be had for, for the Kings at Summer League. But in talking about Keegan Murray, Nick, were your expectations from what you saw in July met? Did, did, he, did he underwhelm you just a tad? Did, did he go above and beyond some of those expectations? What, what are your thoughts after actually seeing Keegan in a, in a Kings uniform? So... It's funny because both of the games that both of the Kings games that I saw in person in Las Vegas, it got to the end of the first quarter. And basically my reaction is, wow, Keegan has been really quiet. You know, he's put up one shot. He put up like one shot in the first game in the first quarter. And he put up like a couple of shots in the first quarter of the second game, but, you know, didn't, wasn't scoring, didn't have the ball in his hands that much. And it was like, you know, okay, I'm, you know, a little, little confused, you know, what's, what's going on? Why is Keegan fading into the woodwork? And then I guess a halftime of both of those games. And in the second game in particular, it's like, oh, he has 10 points and three assists. That came on pretty quickly. <laughs> like that was, you know, did not. And the thing that I think surprised me the most is, you know, both times it got to the end of the game and it's like, wow, Keegan has been a lot quieter than I thought he was. And it's like, oh, he's actually, you know, put up 20 points, you know, grabbed five rebounds, dish out a couple assists, you know, whatever it was. It's like, particularly in the first quarter of both games, it was like, wow, he's been a bit quieter than I would have anticipated. And then, you know, it gets to the halftime or it gets to the end of the game. It's like, wow, he's just been really quietly an incredibly solid contributor. And that's, I think, what actually excited me the most about seeing Keegan in Las Vegas is that, you know, even in the games where he didn't stand out, you know, where he wasn't putting up 37 points, 23 rebounds, right? It's like, even in the games where he was just, you know, quietly plugging along, doing his things, he's still, 
he's facing the ball out to the three-point line. He's still, mm-hmm. you know, solidly executing dribble handoffs at the top of the key. It's like he's doing good things out there on the floor, even when he doesn't stand out. And then particularly in the third quarter of the first game, all of a sudden, you know, hits a three, looks for another one right after, knocks it down, starts getting hot. And it's like, oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> you know, it's like that that quiet moment in the first quarter, all of a sudden very quickly disappears into, all right, Keegan's hot from three. Let's see if we can feed him, keep it going. And of course, the most exciting moment was the moment when the Kings were down 87 to 81. Not that I'm, you know, remembering this or anything with uh, seven seconds left against the Magic. And Nimish Keita hits a three from the top of the arc. And then the next play, King steal the event, King steal the inbound, kick out to Keegan Murray for three. And he just looked so calm and so collected. It was a lot more difficult of a shot than it looked the in person. The movement like shooting watched, in the clutch, man. Yeah. Like when I watched the replay, it looked so much more difficult than it did in person. In person, it's just like, okay, you know, he's getting himself behind the arc, getting his feet set, put up the shot, swish, Kings tie it, 87 up, right? And I was, I was pretty excited. I'm not going to lie. You know, the Kings eventually lost that game, which wasn't as exciting, but certainly I was very pleased by how the game went over time in the first place. But, you know, that was the thing that astounded me was just how smooth and easy it looked for him. And even in the moments where he didn't, you know, where he wasn't taking over the game, right? It was like, even in those moments, I'd look up at the stat sheet at halftime or at the end of the quarter and be like, wow, you know, he didn't stand out, but he's just quietly contributing every quarter, quarter after mm-hmm. quarter. And when he does get hot, it was, it was special to see. So the main reason in, in doing this podcast series, right, is examining how these top rookies are actually going to fit with their teams. And when we look at what Keegan did in summer league, it's, it's, it's pretty astounding to see that his numbers lined up with what he was doing in college for the most part, when you average out all seven games. So again, the Kings took part in the California Classic as well as NBA Summer League in Las Vegas. In all of those games combined, Keegan averaged 22 points, eight rebounds, 50-40-84 shooting splits, a steal close to a block per game, 2.6 turnovers. Like, that's basically what he did in college. That That's incredible. Pretty like, close, no, yeah. I, I don't think anybody thought – he would be able to step in. And again, it's a summer league setting, right? We're not talking about the NBA regular season. We'll obviously have to go up against bigger and better competition on a night to night basis, especially if he's starting, which I think we'd all basically expect him to start at this point. We'll we'll, we'll talk about some of the other pieces the Kings have, but I would agree. Yeah. You and I definitely hope he starts, but still like a, a 22 and eight start, but it's those shooting splits. It's how efficient, he ended up being Nick and not, not every one of those games w- was perfect, right? He had, he had one or two games where he, he probably could have been a little bit more efficient from the field, but the other five games where he's just incredibly efficient, it, it balances everything out and brings him back to that player. We saw in college, we knew he could be a 50 plus percent shooter from the field. We knew that, that he was an 80 plus guy from the free throw line. I think the thing that stands out to me the most was he didn't take a low volume of three-point shots in summer league, and he still finished out averaging 40%, right? Like everybody's talking about the catch-and-shoot game, the, the movement shooting, the shot preparation. Rucker and, and Corey and others had no ceilings when we were evaluating him for the draft cycle. They used the word technician with Keegan Murray, and I thought that that encompassed this game greatly, that he's just so sound and mechanical and technical with everything he does. He's not going to blow you away with an incredible first step or this awesome athleticism, which that that shows 
my opinion, more on the defensive end than the offensive end. We'll, we'll get to that in a second, but he's, he's just so technically sound with everything he does from his shot preparation, how he operates from the elbows, when he catches the ball in the post, when he's able to make a cut, when, when he follows his own shot or follows somebody else's shot, goes up, gets the offensive rebound, is able to get the putback. He's so aware of everything that's going on around him at all times. And then when you factor in how he's so good at catching and shooting the ball, the movement ability, you can bring him off screens. You mentioned some of the DHO game, the pick and pop game. There are a few things that he can't do on the court, but the one thing that he did the best at summer league was the shooting. I was a little surprised with how good it looked, Nick. I'll be honest. Like I, it's not that I didn't think he could, end up becoming like a 37, 38% shooter in the NBA. But you go back and watch some of the college film and you go back and you look at how he was getting some of the shots he did in summer league. And, and some of those looks like you mentioned, like even some of the movement stuff, like he's not creating a ton of separation. Those are some tough shots that he's hitting, but he's so prepared to take and make them. I think he could translate to a level, like he could be a 40% three point shooter in the NBA. And that, that is so valuable for the position that he plays. Were, were you taken aback a little bit by the shooting you saw in summer league, or, or is this kind of the projection that you would have had before the draft all along to like, yeah, this dude's not just going to be a plus shooter. He could potentially be like a plus plus shooter in certain spots on the floor. So it's fascinating because just tracking his development purely in college, his freshman year barely stepped out beyond the three point line shot under 30% for three point range. Then his sophomore year, you know, he shot 40% from deep on a much healthier volume of attempts. Yeah. And my thing with college three-point shooting that I've, you know, been tossing around as a joke a few times in the no ceilings group chat is what I call the Derek Williams principle <laughs> of like, if you shoot 43s in a college season and you make 15% of them, that doesn't mean you're a 40% three-point shooter. And if you expect, you know, incredibly high percentage on incredibly low volume to translate, most of the time you're going to have a bad time when you assume that. But my approach with Keegan throughout the whole process is, you know, wow, he showed serious development as a shooter between his first season in college and his sophomore campaign for Iowa. And so my thought after that was, I think he's established himself as a plus shooter already. The question is, where does he go from here? Right. Yep. And, you know, I was in a similar vein of, I think he's probably going to be, you know, somewhere in the mid to high thirties, his rookie year in the NBA three point shooter. And the fact that he was a 40% three-point shooter, you know, throughout summer league and taking a pretty difficult diet of shots, all things considered, you know, most of those looks he was getting were not open. Right. And he was still, yeah, he, know, he, he, he's not able to create a ton of separation, which like we knew that coming in, we knew he's not going to be an isolation scorer. We know he's not the quickest guy, even coming around those screens. It's not like there's going to be a ton of space between him, the shooter and the defender, but gosh, he's just so ready all the time he's so ready to make those shots even with a hand squirrely in his face yeah and you know that i think is the biggest thing that i noticed in you know july tape right summer league tape versus like march tape right it's yep. like you know he looks like he's taken another level in terms of his preparedness and willingness to shoot from long range and you know when you couple that with the rest of the scoring game that he showed in iowa you know i think by year two, year three, he is going to be able to actually be a decently effective isolation scorer, just bullying people in the post when he gets mismatches, which, you know, won't happen often enough, but it's something that he's shown that he can do at the college level. So, you know, if he establishes himself year one, year two, as this, you know, plus plus shooter rather than yep. just a plus shooter, like a 
40% plus guy rather than a, you know, 36 to 38% guy. And my guess is he probably hovers around 38% year one, but if he is like 40, 41, 42% as a three point shooter, year one, year two, by year two, year three, I think that, you know, people are going to try and put smaller guys on him, you know, try and guard him out on the perimeter. And that's where, you know, maybe he's not the quickest guy in the world, but he is, you know, 6'10", 220, pretty solid, 6'8", rather, 220, pretty solidly built. He'll, he'll back so, those smaller guys down, take them into the post. Exactly. And, and that's, I mean, that that's where he really made his money in college before a lot of the shooting explosion, right? Like even, even as a freshman, he was known as like a mismatch post-up kind of guy. He did a lot of that in his sophomore year still, but that that's where he made his bread and butter. So if, if that's the scenario you're looking at, then you're kind of just feeding a different beast on the court, right? Right. And you know, that's, that's a hopeful long-term thing, but you know, that's sort of the thing, kind of thing that can open up if he really proves, no, I am actually this elite three-point shooter. I'm not just, you know, gone from non-existent part of my game to, okay, I can shoot a three occasionally, right? And that's also something that stood out in summer league is those were the shots he was working to get for the most part. You know, yeah. when he got the ball in the mid post, he was usually passing it out and trying to run off screens and, you know, get himself open from deep. You know, he wasn't trying to just back guys down in the post and bully his way to the rim, which, you know, I think is actually a pretty positive sign because if that's something that, you know, he has in his game by year three because year two he's establishing himself as more of a complimentary guy that's where i think you know you can have the conversation about what does keegan murray's ceiling really look like because you know it's not an every possession thing right where you're posting anybody up even the joel and beads of the world but if it gets to the point where you know teams realize okay we have to face guard him on the perimeter because he's that good of a shooter you know, that's where his not great first step and decent, I'd say he's like about an average athlete. And I think that shows, as you said, more on the defensive end than the offensive end. But, you know, if he's got that well-rounded aspect to his game where, you know, okay, we're forcing him offline. He's someone who can actually do something. And, you know, he's someone who, I mean, he was a 23 point a game scorer, right? You know, he's not going to be the primary scorer at the NBA level, I don't think, but I mean, first of all, if he is the primary scorer at the NBA level, then the Kings are going to be in the playoffs, which is going to be really exciting. But I I think you're you're looking at him even down the road to kind of be a a third option at his best on offense, right? Which is still that that's an important role to fill for a good NBA team. And also, you know, that's where the other secondary aspects of his game that if he really is this kind of a shooter, you know, his secondary scoring becomes all the more obvious because, you know, he has more space than he would if teams just say, oh, okay, you know, he's, he's a decent-ish three-point shooter, I guess, you know, we don't need to care about him that much on the scouting report versus, you know, wow, he might be, and I don't think he will be the best shooter on the team, especially year one, but, you know, if it's someone like, okay, the Kings no longer have Buddy Heald, who's our primary spacing option, if it turns out to be Keegan Murray, that would be awfully good for the Sacramento Kings. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, I, I, I'd i be a little shocked as well if he was their best three-point shooter, considering they have my man Kevin Herter now on the team. They got Malik Monk on the team. I, I'd, I'd be a little surprised, but I won't I won't rule anything out with Keegan Murray because I feel like the more you try and rule out with him, the more he proves everybody wrong, and he still comes out and freaking slaps everybody in the face with, with an awesome game. And he, the, the kind of microwave shooting ability that that he has how hot he can get as you alluded to sure we we might look at him as a third option because of some of the limitations to his ball handling and the first step like we talked about he's not he's not an isolation type of bucket getter in a more traditional sense but if you can get so hot from a shooting standpoint 
all of a sudden you're, you're making shots, you're pouring in points, you're kind of acting like a second or a first option on, on some given nights. Right. And that's just, just having a guy who can get that hot from the perimeter, who can add that sort of dimension to the offense. I think every NBA team would love to have more of that. That's why I, I made some arguments during this draft class for a guy like Malachi Branham, for example, like Malachi Branham might not be the first or second offensive option on your team, but he can be a guy who, if you don't play him correctly on defense, he can burn you for 20, 25, 30 points in a single game. And Keegan Murray, we already saw that that's going to be the case for him in the NBA right out of the box. If you don't respect him on defense, if you don't put a good defender on him, if you think you can just, you can hide somebody else on him when he's going to be in a lineup with De'Aaron Fox and Demonis Simonis and Harrison Barnes, and you think that you have to pay so much more attention to those guys because they're proven NBA players, and you're kind of just going to leave Keegan Murray over here, Keegan's going to burn you, and he's going to burn you pretty bad. And I think that was one of the biggest positive takeaways that, that I could have walked away with coming out of Summer League is that he's going to prove to be the player I thought he was coming out of the draft sooner rather than later, which is great to see for Kings fans from an offensive perspective. The defensive side of the ball. I went back and I rewatched some of the summer league stuff for, for him on defense. I queued up all of his defensive possessions. I won't say I'm overly concerned. I'm a tad bit concerned. And I think what I'm a tad bit concerned about is correctable. I think when I go back and I watched Keegan on defense, we, we talked about some of his limits athletically, right? his foot speed laterally, it, it's not the greatest, but he anticipates so well. He positions himself so well. He knows what's going on around him. Like even through going back and watching those defensive possessions in summer league, there's only one time where I saw him on, on a catch and shoot opportunity. He could have closed out better. He's kind of just standing there. The guy's already getting up the shot and then he's going over to move. I'm like, come on, Keegan, like you, you can be better than that. Right. There, there was only one time that I was left with that kind of an impression, but for the most part, he knows where to be. There were a lot of clips, though, that I saw. It seems like he's still trying to adjust to defending NBA personnel versus employing some of the defensive habits that he got away with at Iowa, for example, right? Like Iowa, he was much more of a defensive playmaker than somebody who's going to wall somebody off and actually sit down and guard them one-on-one -on -one at all times. You can't always do that in the NBA, especially depending on the matchup. Now, where I come back and I say that's correctable is that in one of the games against the high profile matchup against the Orlando magic, you go back and watch Keegan's defense on Paolo Bencaro. Keegan got burned pretty badly in the first half on, on a few possessions, but then you watch him in the second half. He actually adjusts, right? He, he doesn't look to, to funnel somebody to the basket or, or play them from the back of their hip and try and swipe and make a play on the ball, whether it be a deflection or a steal or whatever the case may be. You see him trying to wall off Paolo. You see him being a little more anticipatory of where Paolo's going to end up on the court. And he gave Paolo some tough shots. And, and Paolo made a few of those looks, but he also, he also missed some of them. And that's really where Keegan looked the most effective defensively was when he kind of stuck some of those college habits behind him. And he embraced, okay, I got to be locked in and engaged on every single possession, especially when I'm guarding a scorer like Paolo. I got to wall him off. I got to play him tough. I have to be physical. And if I do that, 
I have the length, right? I, I, I time very well when I can jump and get up off the ground to contest a shot. I can make life difficult for him if I make some defensive adjustments. I don't think he's ever going to be an awesome isolation defender in the NBA, but from a team standpoint, from him being able to make adjustments built around what he's good at for his size, for his position, I do think he can be a good defender in the NBA. I don't think anybody painted him the picture of being a great defender when he came in, but there was enough I saw in college to where this guy's really smart. He knows where to be. He's going to make the reads and he can be a good team defender in the NBA. That's still how I feel despite some of what I saw in summer league. Any, any thoughts about what you saw from Keegan defensively out in Las Vegas or, or at the California classic? Yeah. So I think the thing with Keegan's defense, my sort of line on this is I think he's going to be a good defender at the NBA level sooner rather than later, but you know, the idea being he's not there yet. And, you know, I say often that with very few exceptions, rookies are really terrible defensively, (laughs) like really, really bad. Uh, We'll talk about someone later on who, you know, bucks that trend a little bit, but yep. he is he is the exception that proves the rule more than anything else. But I think with Keegan, it is going to be huge for him to be playing alongside Harrison Barnes. And I can't believe that I'm saying this as someone who was very upset about the Harrison Barnes trade when it <laughs> happened. But, you know, he has really grown into the veteran leader for this Kings team. And the thing about Harrison Barnes is, you know, he does have that lateral quickness. You know, he's not as quick as he was, you know, during his first few seasons with the Warriors. But, you know, because the Kings have Harrison Barnes, I am very comfortable in the idea that Keegan Murray, you know, especially as he showed in that second half against Paulo, you know, if you give him a slightly bigger player, you know, he can handle them in the post. You know, he can make the right reads. You can switch out when he has to on the perimeter. But if you mostly keep him, you know, on a mostly paint power forward type, I am much less concerned about his ability to guard fours than I am his ability to guard threes, especially his mm-hmm. first couple of years in the league. And the fact that the Kings have Harrison Barnes as the other forward, I think the two of them can actually, you know, trade assignments pretty reasonably. And, you know, if Keegan just gets, okay, the slower, slightly bulkier, more paint oriented of the two forwards and Harrison Barnes gets the other guy. I think that actually works out well for a couple of reasons. I think it allows Keegan to, you know, learn slowly, be brought along slowly on the defensive end while also not sacrificing all that much because the key thing that you mentioned that, you know, was also the thing that stood out to me the most in Vegas is he knows where he's supposed to be. And, you know, sometimes he can't quite get there. And, you know, a couple of closeouts, maybe he could have tried a little bit harder, but he knows where he's supposed to be, right? And if you have him and Harrison Barnes as the forward pair, Harrison Barnes also knows where to be. And, you know, if one person is like, okay, one of the two of us is going to be a little more switchable, a little more perimeter oriented than the other one. If that's Harrison Barnes rather than Keegan Murray, I think that works out just fine. I think that, you know, Harrison Barnes is probably slightly better at the four than the three at this point in his career. But ultimately, if that's your defensive forward tandem, you know, those guys are both six, eight, you know, I think Barnes is much more switchable than Keegan at this point. But if, you know, Keegan gets to be brought along slowly, you know, learn the intricacies of defense from Harrison Barnes and of course, Davion Mitchell, I'm kidding. But, um, you know, the idea, the idea being that I think that he and Harrison Barnes make a solid enough forward tandem defensively that even though there are certainly some concerns about Keegan's defense, I think ultimately the most important part is that 
he knows where he's supposed to be. And even if he's not the greatest athlete in the world, when you combine him with Harrison Barnes, I think we're going to get a very smart defensive forward duo, even if there are still some growing pains with Keegan Murray. The dreaded part of the podcast for you, my friend. This this oh, is boy. your time okay. to shine. Are you satisfied with Keegan Murray over Jay Nivey? See, we've, we've done all this Keegan Murray talk and, you know, Tyler Rucker and I a couple of months ago wrote the Keegan Murray dilemma, which was basically a debate about exactly this question, Jaden Ivey or Keegan Murray. And I mean, on the one hand, Jaden Ivey had the most impressive quarter of anyone, I think, at Summer League. The, yeah, the, the best five minutes, right, before he got injured. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, that's, that's where I was going with that one. Um, no, I don't know. I mean the way I sort of felt about it right after the draft was like, I think I, I mean, I personally had Jaden Ivey higher on my board. So therefore I would have preferred that the Kings drafted him, but I think Jaden Ivey to Detroit and Keen Worry to Sacramento works out better for both of those prospects and both of those teams. than I think the other way around would have worked. So, you know, literally neither of these players has played a single NBA game yet. So I don't want to quite call my shot on this, but ultimately where I landed on the Keegan Murray dilemma was I personally would rather have Ivy, but I'm very happy with Keegan Murray. And if it's one of those two guys, I'm going to be very happy. If it's somebody else, I uh, might not be as pleased, but I think I'm basically in the same place as I was right after the draft, which is I probably still slightly would have preferred Ivy, but I'm very happy that Keegan Murray is the Sacramento King. All right. So we'll, we'll move past the rookie talk. We'll move into a fun conversation, in my opinion, about your team's quote-unquote franchise player, one of the two franchise players, now that you have Sabonis, and De'Aaron Fox. And De'Aaron Fox's name came up a few weeks ago on this podcast when I had Corey and Albert and Pierre from Through the Wire on to do a top 25 under 25 draft. And we did a fun exercise where we essentially did a top 25 under 25 ranking each of us individually. I made a composite ranking out of all of ours grouped together. And then that was our draft pool to be able to use to draft teams live on air to build out the best teams that we could from that pool. My team was heavily scrutinized by the other guys to say the least, but I was the one who ended up picking De'Aaron Fox. I picked him 24th in that draft. So that means that everybody else thought that for better or worse, in terms of fitting better or, or moving, uh, playing better in a more modernized style, complimenting guys, they thought De'Aaron Fox wasn't better than, than 23 other guys in that draft. Corey and Albert didn't even have him in their top 25 under 25 altogether. I had him 12th and Pierre had him 17th. So Obviously, I'm not asking you to, to make a top 25 or 25 on the spot, but thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> what are some of your thoughts when when you hear that, that De'Aaron Fox in an exercise like that, he wasn't being valued certainly as high as where, where I would have had him, for example, where I was making my ranking based off of sure upside goes into it, but also are you a proven NBA commodity? What can you give me today if I have you on my team today? And I couldn't justify having De'Aaron Fox any lower than I did. And I understand I didn't end up taking him until that, that 24th pick. And he, he effectively was my sixth man. 
in, in, in a six person rotation, but I just felt like there was a level of, of disrespect to an extent around De'Aaron Fox and you being a Kings fan, Nick, you, you, you've watched De'Aaron Fox over the years. And I know that you and I talked on the last podcast we did about you see him as your franchise point guard. And I agreed with you, but why do you think Fox may not be as valued as highly as some of his peers in that age group around the NBA? Like, what do you think's going on? So I think it's a combination of factors. And the first one I'm going to breeze through very quickly because it's the one that can be most easily dismissed by other people, which is, oh, he plays for the Kings, so people won't pay attention, <laughs> which, I mean, you laugh, but, you know, that is something that happens to an extent, and we don't sure. need to argue about the extent to which it happens. But, you know, I want to say up top, that's not, you know, part of the logic that I'm going to throw into my case. I'd like to, I'd like to think I can present a more logical case than just he plays for the Kings, but... I think that does play a factor in it. I think the other thing that plays a factor in it is that he has had really unfortunate timing with his injuries. It's not just that he's had a couple of minor bang ups. It's that they've come at really awful and awkward times. So like, you know, the 2019 20 season was, you know, pretty, pretty impressive for him, you know, starting to show that he'd really taken a leap in that year three and then he misses the start of the 2020-2021 campaign. And, you know, the Kings struggle dramatically. But, you know, he comes back in December of 2020. And to post you know, the best stretch of his career, essentially. Well, that's, yeah, exactly. That's what we're getting to. Is, you know, the stretch run of that season is basically, you know, the best of his career. In 14 games in March, in March 2021, he averaged nearly 30 points and seven assists a game, right? He was. Yeah really taking off it was looking like okay you know he didn't put up enough value stats before the all-star game because you know he was hurt until you know basically start of 2021 and you know he really turned it on february march april right and then you know this past season starts out not that great for him you know wavering a bit but the demonis Sabotis trade happens and all of a sudden once again you know darren fox is averaging near 30 points a game March 2022, he actually averaged 31 points and seven and a half assists per game, right? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, the Kings finally traded for a good big man to pair along with De'Aaron Fox and his numbers are jumping up dramatically. You know, maybe this is it for him. And then he gets hurt and misses all of April, right? So I think a huge part of the reason why he's fallen off the radar for a decent number of people is that basically two of the best stretches he's had have been broken up and separated by various minor injuries, right? Like, you know, not tearing his ACL or anything, but, you know, foot issues that, you know, took him out for, you know, 15, 20 games, right? And so I think part of it is that, you know, his two best stretches, one of them came, you know, after the Kings traded for Sabonis, which was after the Kings were long out of contention. (laughs) And then, you know, he misses the last month of the season and all of a sudden Davion Mitchell has an awesome April and people are like, oh, you know, how special is De'Aaron Fox really? And then, you know, the previous time that he had a really, really awesome stretch, it was, you know, basically right after the All-Star game, all of a sudden, oh, wow, he looks fantastic. You know, he's heading into the 2021-2022 season looking great. So I think that the timing of his injuries really made it harder for people to see how special he is when he's Mm -hmm. at his peak. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's really more the reason for it than just Lol Kings, right? I think it's more just that he's had a few really awesome stretches and they just haven't been back to back. So, you know, people are like, oh, is it just, you know, 
him playing out the string in March, you know, teams don't really care that much. And he's putting up numbers against them versus like, you know, wow, there were, you know, a couple months there where he was putting up 30 and seven, right. It's like, because the stretches were, you know, bracketed by injuries and ends of seasons and pandemics and all that fun stuff, you know, people haven't really seen a extended stretch of him playing the way that he's played when he's yep. at his best. Certainly a, a lot of mixed emotions on the De'Aaron Fox front. I, I think what you just highlighted, the whole case around his injuries, that, that has to be the reason why. He, he wouldn't be as highly valued amongst the peers because when he's on the floor, we can talk about some of his limitations in the mid range as far as a pull-up shot. We can talk about, you know, his, his inefficiency or, or his hot and cold spells from three point range, but there are few guards in the NBA who can actually do what he can do on the floor. The amount of rim pressure that he can provide both in the half court, as well as obviously out on the break where he's one of the fastest players in the league a proven 20 plus points per game score, a proven six plus assist guy, right? He can, he, he, he's, hasn't been a good defender in his NBA career, but he, he still has quick hands. He can make a play on the ball and get a steal and get his team out of the break every now and then. Like what he can do, especially on the offensive side of the ball, there just aren't enough guards in the NBA for me to have him that low in a ranking enough guards in the NBA to where they're doing that on a night to night basis. They might have the capability of putting up those numbers, but they're not averaging those numbers. And when you talk about De'Aaron Fox at his best, that best stretch of his career where he was, you know, the 30 points, like you mentioned, but really still finishing that season, 25 plus points per game. When you get to that 25 to 27 points per game, Mark, you're starting to hit a tier of player where like, you have to be considered at that point, like, like a top 50 player in the NBA, or at the very least, like you're like right on the cusp of being that type of player. I would consider De'Aaron Fox certainly inside of like a top 60. I don't have that kind of a ranking prepared in front of me right now, but like a top 50, top 60 player, that, that means something to me. And that's why I would still value him highly uh, amongst his peers. He's kind of growing towards the back end of that under 25 ranking, but I think he's still developed into a really good NBA player. I want to see him continue to work on some of the defense. I want to see that be emphasized in his game. I think the shooting, I think the shooting for everything else that he does from a scoring standpoint, I think the shooting's fine. I think the passing has been fine. I think he's a good pick and roll player. I want to see some steps taken in other areas of his game, like I said, but I, I struggle to, to wrap my head around De'Aaron Fox is incapable of leading a franchise from the point guard position. Is he, can he be your top overall player on a championship team? How many point guards can, right? Like that, that's not the question that I want to ask, but like, can he be a, a really firm foundational piece at that point guard spot for a good to really good playoff caliber team? Absolutely. Like I, I'm answering that question without hesitation. So that's why, I think I would still value him highly. I want to see him stay healthy. Hopefully he's healthy this year and he can help your Kings get back into the playoffs, which is where I think more people I'm starting to see on social media actually project them to be trending towards, right? A potential don't, playoff spot, Nick. Don't, don't do that. Don't give me hope. Well, don't. well, listen, man, like the, the Kings quietly have a pretty solid 10 man rotation, right? With, with, with proven commodities or, guys who we're expecting to become proven 
this year in a Keegan Murray. And we're also expecting more for, for Davion Mitchell was where, which is where this conversation was going to go before I have a fun question to get you out of here on Davion Mitchell. You mentioned the April that he had, which by the way, I, I, I love the people out there that this isn't you, this isn't me, but there are some people who overreact to the March and April performances in the NBA when everybody starts sitting and taking games off and you see a lot of the younger guys go out there. Like I, I, I get being excited about some of the production, but I, I take it with a little bit of a grain of salt, but, but, but that being said, I think all year long, Davion looked tremendous on the defensive side of the ball, had people, um, talking earlier in the year, like in the November, December, January, like could this guy as a rookie end up in like the all defense conversation, right? I think the offense is what held him back from being a more prominent part in the Kings rotation earlier in the year because he he shot under 42% from the field. Three-point shooting didn't carry over. He still wasn't a factor from the free throw line. Some of the decision-making at times was hit or miss playing out of the pick and roll, but when he did figure it out on offense, the end of March, and then through that April stretch, he was looking like that Davion Mitchell from, from Baylor, the guy who everybody wanted to project as a lottery pick in, in that draft. And that's an exciting guy at the very least to have come off your bench as a six man. I think that's the role that, that I would certainly project for him heading into year two. But what, what are your expectations for Davion Mitchell as he heads into year two? It is going to be fascinating to see what happens with Davion in year two. And, you know, you brought up the whole March and April thing, and that's particularly relevant for the Kings, given that the Kings <laughs> haven't been in contention in March or April for more than a decade now. But the thing with Davion that was most encouraging to me about his stretch run in April is that he looked like he was processing the pick and roll game so much better than he yep. was earlier in the year. He was making much better reads. He looked much more aware of the flow on offense out there. And that was, I think, really the biggest positive for me because, you know, the first half of the season, especially with Tyrese Halliburton being, you know, really the most point guardy of the three point guards of mm -hmm. Mitchell, Halliburton, and Fox, right? So it's like, you know, the thing for me with Davion was, okay, defense, great, translated. We're good to go, right? Defense, he's clearly going to be a positive defensive piece for a while. I mean, you know, I mentioned up front that, rookies are always terrible on defense and there's an exception that proves the rule. Davion Mitchell is the exception that proves the rule that rookies are terrible on defense. But, you know, the thing with him that was most encouraging for me was how much more comfortable he looked as a primary initiator, you know, as, yep. especially as De'Aaron Fox has shown, you know, he's somewhere in the combo guard point guard sort of spectrum rather than just being a pure point guard. I think he, need, that, he needs to have the ball in his hands, right? Like I think like yes. from what we saw last year, I, I think the, the, the off guard, like I'm going to play exclusively off the ball and be like more of a secondary guy alongside somebody who's going to be more of a high volume ball handler within the offense. I, I, I think he's much better suited as that six man to where he can come in. He can be the sole guard with the ball in his hands and he can make everything happen. Sure. But I mean, that's, I think, where the Demonis Sabonis factor comes into play too, right? I mean, with Davion Mitchell, you know, if the Kings say run him and Fox out to start the game and then, you know, six minutes in, subs off the bench, Herder comes off the bench, Monk comes off the bench, whatever. And then Mitchell comes back in the game, you know, early second quarter, and then he's running the point as opposed to, you know, being more of an off-ball guy when he starts the game because De'Aaron has the ball in his hands. The part that encouraged me about the last month or so of the season for Mitchell is that, you know, earlier on in the season, it's like, okay, 
if his three pointer falls, he can be decent off ball, right? He can be helpful off ball. If it starts falling, you know, somewhere between the 45% his last season at Baylor and the like sub 30% that he was to start the season. Right. So it's like, okay, you know, if he can provide some off ball shooting in theory further down the line, we've already seen what we're going to get from him on the defensive end and that's spectacular. So, you know, good to go there. But the part that really encouraged me about his stretch run of the season is okay. You know, he looks a lot less lost as the primary playmaker. And, you know, if the Kings run plays where it's like, all right, this is a play, you know, designed to get deer and Fox cut into the rim. I'm much more confident in Davion Mitchell making the pass to Fox cutting after April than I would have been after watching him in say January. So yeah, yeah, I think we talked about this last time I was on where, you know, maybe in the longer term, it makes more sense for Davion Mitchell to be a six man type because I see De'Aaron Fox as the future point guard of this franchise. But given what I saw in April, it made me more comfortable with Davion Mitchell filling multiple roles, right? Rather than just purely being a defense guy. It's like, okay, he can run the offense if De'Aaron's out of the game. He can run a couple plays with De'Aaron in the game. And that just allows him to fit into a lot more roster constructions than if it's just, okay, this is our defense first small guard, right? There's just more opportunity for him if he expands his skill set more. And that was the encouraging part of what I saw from him in April. You know, the numbers are one thing, but his comfort in reading the pick and roll was, I think, the biggest thing for me. I think Davion being as good as he is on the defensive side of the ball, being able to guard twos and not just being locked into guarding those ones is going to make the combination of him and Malik Monk so much fun off the Mm -hmm. bench, if that's the bench combination, right? Because Davion can cover up whatever defensive hole that needs to be filled with having Malik out there And then I think Davion and Malik Monk can play off of one another. Like Davion, for what he's able to do with the ball in his hands, and if he continues to make strides and making those reads out of pick and roll, him being able to find Malik Monk out open on the perimeter, like that that can be a lot of good three-point shots to be had from a bench unit, especially playing against other second-unit guys. So I'm excited to see those two kind kind of work off together. But we talked about Keegan. We talked about De'Aaron Fox. We just brought up Davion Mitchell and then Devonis Sabonis. Like those are, those are the household names for the general public when it comes to Sacramento Kings. Like everybody has a, a set line of expectations for them, especially if they're projecting the Kings to be a playoff team or get in the play and whatever the case may be. Who is your favorite sleeper Kings contributor? Maybe go a little bit outside of the box. Who's one guy who wasn't a part of those four you can technically throw Harrison Barnes in that category as well, but who, who is the guy on the outside who you maybe saw in summer league or they added to the roster this year, who you're really excited to see contribute to this Kings team this upcoming season. And you think that they can actually be somewhat of an impact player for a team that's looking to make a playoff push. So this is actually a perfect lead on from what you were talking about with Davion Mitchell off the bench one of the three of Davion Mitchell, Malik Monk, and Kevin Herter, one of the three of them is going to start, right? Which yep. means that two of the other guys are probably going to be two of my favorite Sacramento Kings this upcoming <laughs> season. And the guy that I'm most excited about outside of their sort of main, you know, group, if we call the starting five, just theoretically call the starting five, Darren Fox, Davion Mitchell, Keegan Murray, Harrison Barnes, Demonte Sabonis, Kevin Herter is the guy that I am really excited about. He will provide above average defense on the wing, which the Kings have desperately needed, desperately needed for like half a decade now. 
He's someone who, you know, can run secondary pick and rolls, is decently effective at that, is a really solid passer, is, you know, 38% three-point shooter on decent volume of attempts from long range. He's going to be huge for the Kings shooting. He's going to be huge for their defense on the wing. He's going to be huge for their playmaking on the wing. And he, I think, really fills out that sort of, you know, if the top five group, again, of Fox, Mitchell, Barnes, Murray, Sabonis, Kevin Herter, I think, allows you to slide a bunch of other players on this roster in and out of the lineup construction, just, you know, with the idea that, oh, Kevin will probably fill a whole bunch of holes, right? Like you want to, let's say you want to run a big lineup out there, right? And you say, okay, Fox at point guard, Kevin Herter, Keegan Murray, Harrison Barnes, Demonis Sabonis. You can be pretty comfortable that Kevin Herter will be able to guard the stronger wing player or the quicker wing player, probably with, you know, Barnes and Murray as the forwards out there. Or, you know, you can run a lineup where it's like, okay, we're going to run, you know, basically, and something the Hawks did, you know, not all that often, but was decently effective, particularly like two years ago, more than this past season, yep. but, you know, run Kevin Herter out there with a bunch of bench guys, right? And, you know, there'll be some shooters there and Kevin will get them the ball. And, you know, if he really has to create something for himself, it's going to be a lot less ugly than, you know, throwing the ball to a whole number of other players and say, hey, make something out of nothing here. So, I think Kevin Herter provides a couple of things this team desperately needs in terms of wing defense and shooting on the wing. And, you know, I think that his playmaking element will be really huge for this team. I mean, DeMontis Sabonis is one of the best passing big men in the league, but outside of that, especially after the Tyrese Halliburton trade, you know, outside of maybe Harrison Barnes, you don't really have any above average passers at their position. And Kevin Herter fulfills that and then some for them. So I think he's someone who could play a really key role for this Kings team this coming season and hopefully beyond. Kevin Herter as a little selfish plug for me over at no ceilings, but the, the piece I put up about my favorite scouting stories, Kevin Herter is one of my most cherished in-person scouting stories that I have. I won't spoil that whole thing. If you want to read it, certainly go to no ceilingsnba.com selfish plug, check the piece out, but there are a few bigger fans of Kevin Herter than I am. Nobody, Nobody uses the term connector when they talk about Kevin Herter, which is a little strange to me because I think everybody only thinks about Kevin Herter's best off ball moments for the Atlanta Hawks, right? Where he was one of those corner floor spacers where you get the ball out to him. Trey Young was kicking it out to him. He'd be a knockdown shooter, but there were other times in Atlanta, he was doing some things off the dribble. He was finding guys on the move and those playmaking elements that were part of his game in Maryland, they did start to pop out a little bit, the older he got with that Atlanta Hawks team. And he, listen, he, he killed my 76ers in a playoff game. I will never forget that. I was like, damn, I was right about that guy, but damn, he's also killing my squad out there. Like <laughs> there's always so upset I could be though, when, when it was Kevin Herter who was actually, you know, doing the dirty to the Philadelphia 76ers, but I'm a big fan of his. I think that was a very shrewd pickup by the Kings. I love that he's a part of your squad. I can't wait to watch him work off of everybody else. He would be my sleeper pick as well. I would love to throw Nemias Kata's name out there. I just, between oh, Sabonis I'm and Rashawn so Holmes, but between those two guys, I just don't know where the minutes are going to come from. But man, Nick, you, you and I, we, we watched him in summer league together, man. Like, he, he looked freaking awesome. Like I gave him a shout out on, on a retier pod that I did with Chuck. Like 
God, I, I, I wish there was a way for K to consistently crack the, the, the King's rotation. I'm assuming you feel the same way. Yes, I very much feel the same <laughs> way. You uh, might be aware of the Pandora's box that you've just opened by allowing me an opportunity to talk about Nimish Keda, but- We got to end the podcast with... on a high note, so go for it. Okay, there we go. Perfect. So the thing with Keda, I said this in the Summer League Diary, but the first thing that popped out, he looked massive in person, even among the massive human beings that comprise NBA rosters yep. and NBA Summer League rosters. And, you know, the thing with Keda is that he provides a real defensive shot blocking presence that with Demonis Sabonis as presumably the starting center going forward, it seems like they're committed to playing him at center rather than power forward with him as the starting center, you know, with Rashawn Holmes still on the team coming off the bench, I've been a huge fan of Rashawn Holmes's game for a very long time. So, you know, him not getting minutes is one thing, but, you know, I think with Keita, you're bringing in someone who is the multiple time defensive player of the year in his conference, which, you know, playing for Utah state, you know, not exactly top of the pops, but, you know, he's someone who, you know, as a prospect just absolutely jumped off the page as this shot blocking menace and, you know, what we saw from him in summer league that was most impressive to me is it looked like his offensive game is really coming along. I mean, I'm not going to peg him as a shooter by any stretch, just because he happened to hit two three pointers while we were down there. But, you know, the thing that impressed me the most about his offensive game is he looked a lot more comfortable moving the ball out of the post. He looked, you know, he's a monstrous screen setter. You know, when he gets his feet set, no one is getting around that dude. And he he was he was catching the ball on the roll and taking guys off the dribble. I was like, I was like, holy crap, he looks really coordinated out there. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, he is someone who the coordination has never been the issue for him, right? It's like, you know, he was just such a defensive first player whose offensive game was not all the way there yet. And if his offensive game continues to develop at the speed that it looked like it had from, you know, him as a second year player in summer league, as you mentioned, you know, even dribbling the ball up sometime, I mean, not dribbling the ball up, like, you know, handling the ball, but, you know, driving towards the rim, right? As, as you said, you know, making those making those roles and actually taking the ball and doing something with it, you know, that's a huge growth for him from yep. year two versus year one. And I mean, the defense was there with him. Right. And the thing that the Kings have struggled with for, you know, more than a decade now is the defensive end, not the offensive You, side. you guys so, don't have another big like him who has the chance of no, putting up not. multiple blocks per 40 minutes, right? Like he, he's the, he's that option on your team. Yes, exactly. And you know, again, I'm a huge fan of Rashawn Holmes, but I think ultimately for the longer term with this team, if Demonis Sabonis is cemented as the starting center, which again, he is, and again, I think that's the right move. I mean, I think adding Keita's element as a backup center rather than as like a third string guy who's spending most of his time in Stockton rather than with the main team. I mean, I think Keita would be ready for a 10 to 15 minute a game backup center role right now. And the question is, you know, can he get there? Can he get to those minutes? And, you know, maybe the Kings find a trade for Rashawn Holmes that they're happy with. And, you know, if it ends up being a trade that gets them something solid back in return, you know, I would miss Rashawn Holmes and his parents, his mother in particular, being part of King's <laughs> Twitter. But I think that Keita is ready for a backup center role now. And, you know, I, Clearly, he's a lot cheaper than Rashawn Holmes contract-wise. So 
you know, if the Kings find a good move, I think that they are ready to bring Kate into the fold and the defense was there with him. And, you know, if the offensive strides forward that he showed in summer league continue to develop, then, you know, I think that by even January, February of this year, he could be a major rotation player for the Kings. And I'd be very happy about that because I love watching him. And it's also nice to have the entire nation of Portugal behind the Sacramento Kings. <laughs> What a great way to end the podcast. The, the name of the pod is Draft Deeper, and, and I think we went deep enough when we get into Nemias Keita's potential part in the Kings rotation. I, I, I think we did a good job of, of living up to the title of the podcast. But Nick, thank you so much for joining me to talk about Sacramento Kings basketball. It's always a pleasure having you on the pod. You're, and really, everybody on the No Ceilings team, I love working with everybody, but we always have a good time when you're on the podcast. So for being a, a repeat guest, thank you so much for giving me some time coming back. Let everybody know where they can find you, man. Do, do the traditional plug for yourself. Absolutely. So first, thank you for having me back. Always fun to chat basketball with you. And somehow it's now fun to talk about Kings basketball, which has not always been the case. So That was an enjoyable more... podcast episode, right? Was. That was good. Full of optimism and excitement and stuff. It's, <laughs> it's weird. I don't know. I don't know what to do with, with, optimism about the kings but you know maybe maybe this will be a theme going forward wouldn't that be nice if king's optimism can actually be something that's repeated you if, know? If, if they make the playoffs we will consider this podcast we'll we'll call it the turning point podcast episode right there there you go if they make the playoffs nobody's work is getting edited for a week and a half i'm saying that right <laughs> now <laughs> oh boy go ahead and give your plugs man where can everybody find you all right, so people can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, and all of my work goes up on my Twitter feed, be it articles or, wow, that was really a screw up of the word articles, that's embarrassing, but uh, articles, all of it goes up there, podcast appearances, radio interviews, whatever it is that I might be doing, it will go up on my Twitter page, and no ceilings MBA, of course, no ceilings MBA.com at no ceilings MBA on all socials, no ceilings TV on YouTube, all that good stuff. And then I also write for hashtag basketball, who is the current host of the NBA deep dives podcast, which I co-host with my hashtag basketball and no ceilings MBA colleague, Tyler Metcalf. And then finally Nets Republic, who I've also done written work for at Nets Republic on all social media. So yeah, those are the plugs for me. Nick's a busy guy. He's all over the place. He does great work for No Ceilings. Thank you to him again for him coming on, giving some of his time to, to be a guest on this podcast episode. But the most important thank you, as always, goes out to the audience. Everyone who listens to this podcast on a weekly basis, thank you for tuning in for each and every episode. If you aren't subscribed already, please go ahead and do so wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Make sure you're following me on Twitter, at Draft Deeper. Make sure you're following No Ceilings on Twitter at no ceilings NBA and subscribe to the Substack no ceilings NBA.com. No, it's not draft season, but we're still pumping out two to three written pieces each and every week. We're all still doing podcast episodes and Nick and I promise the great no ceilings return is coming. It's not that far away. We're already making plans for, it. we're already talking about it and the return to draft content for draft deeper. Also incredibly close right around the corner believe middle of September, we're targeting that Wednesday, third week of September, Maxwell Baumbach, my brand new lead co-host, is going to be on with me. Stephen Gillespie is also going to be joining us while he's here to help us help spearhead 
the draft coverage here at Draft Deeper. Steven's not going anywhere. The three of us are going to be an awesome trio on the Draft Deeper podcast feed. I cannot wait to start previewing the 2023 NBA draft class. But until then, thank you all again for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.